Hey there, Ken folk. This is Uncle Maduro. Look, if y'all been enjoying these little pie talks here I'll be giving, then won't y'all consider buying old Uncle Maduro a cigar? You can go right there to my little wave page there and donate. Donate to Uncle Maduro just for the price of one cigar. And man, let me tell you, I keep on doing these little talks here that I be giving. So now that I've done harassing y'all like a cigar at the beach, let's get back to the talk. All right now. How y'all doing there? Sure like to thank y'all for stopping by to have a cigar with Uncle Maduro. Man, look at here. Now y'all knows before we get started, all I like to tell y'all what I'm smoking on. And tonight, I'm smoking on something I really, really been enjoying. I'm smoking on a Perdomo 20th anniversary Maduro. Man, let me tell you, this show is a good stick that I've been enjoying. Actually, for the last couple of days now, I've been smoking these Perdomos. These are these Perdomos. Now, before I tell y'all what I think about this little stick here, I'm going to tell y'all what these folks say, okay? They say this Perdomo. 20th anniversary Maduro is guaranteed to deliver another all-star to Nick's already stellar lineup of affordable high-quality premium cigars. For this project, Nick decided to use only the highest premium tobaccos from his finest farms in Estelle, Condigo, and the renowned Bojalo Valley in Nicaragua. Perdomo 20th anniversary Maduro is medium to full-bodied. Unbelievably, unbelievably complex, delivering flavors of coffee, earth, leather, and the perfect amount of spice, leaving the palate in a state of pure joy. Man, let me tell you. Now, the shape of this thing here is a core hole, okay? That's, that's, that's what the shape of it. And like I said, the Nicaraguan, the wrap is Nicaraguan, and it's medium to full body. Now, let me tell y'all something. Now, that's what these folks are saying. Now, this is a beautiful stick. The consistency has been tremendous. This, I have really, you know, for the, um, I don't know what's been going on with me, but I don't know if I said this on the last pod talk or not, but I think I'm starting to, I'm trying, I think I'm starting to grow in to these tobaccos here, you know, to this uh, cigar game here. I'm starting to really understand what I like and I don't like. And then I'm also seeing that, you know, even some cigar aficionados, you know, some like my buddies, and you and I know the cigar aficionados because sometimes you can't, you I like they get humidors or some of their rooms in the house, you can't walk over, walk in without tripping over a cigar, you see. But they smoke really, really high quality cigars and they know their tobaccos. And I find some of the things that they like, I don't like, and it's funny. Like me and a buddy of mine, you know, one of one of the cigar buddies, he was, you know, he was, he gave me one. I went over to his house and he gave me a stick, you know, one of these anniversaries, high quality sticks, uh, from this certain, uh, uh, you know, tobacco company, uh, cigar to cigar company, and um, he was really enjoying it. But mine, it was a hard draw. You know, I wasn't tasting anything but tobacco. You know, I wasn't getting anything out of it. You know, it wouldn't stay lit. You know, I was fighting with it. But yet he was over there enjoying the same cigar. And these cigars was, I think there was a uh, price point anywhere from 16 to $20 price point. So I know they was good sticks, but I didn't get anything out of it. So what I did was I ended up, you know, I smoked what I could or what I could tolerate of it. And then I just went into my little cigar little pouch and I put on me a Southern Classic. You know, a Southern Classic. Um... And I really enjoyed it. 
and that Southern Classic the price point only like eight dollars, and I really enjoyed that Southern Classic that uh, that that, uh, that I was smoking versus that high dollar cigar. So like I say, it's not the case that you know it's a bad cigar. It's the case of like Roz always say, the cigar that you enjoy, the cigar that you like, is the one that you enjoy smoking. So, but that just that was just something. But these Pedermos here, I really been really been enjoying these uh Pedermos. Actually before I picked up this Pedermo a couple weeks back, I picked up some some uh Partagas. Because for some reason in my mind, Partagas and Pedermo, it just seems so close sometimes. But I love the Partagas and I picked up this Pedermo. I got reacquainted with it. And let me tell you something. This is a good stick. Matter of fact, I don't think I ever had a bad Pedermo. There's another line that so far for me has been consistent. And like I tell y'all all the time, I'm not no cigar aficionado, you know, none kind of people like that. I just knows what I enjoy. I'm I'm coming to know what I enjoy smoking. And I've really been enjoying these Pedermos. So if y'all get a chance, go to your local cigar spot first. See if they got these Pedermos 20th anniversary Maduros or anything else in the Pedermo line. Buy it from your local cigar spot first. Then, if they ain't got it, y'all go online, these hoats, uh, CIs or whatever like that, and y'all buy y'all stuff online, vote to fill up your humidor. But always shop local first. All right, now. Now, look here. Got a little talk for y'all here. Now, tonight, we're going to talk about something that has, that has been very interesting to me. Something, actually, I ran into when I was doing some research on the prison system. Okay? This thing here called uh, school-to-prison pipeline. School to prison pipeline. When I read that, when I was looking at, I was doing a research on incarceration in prison, or I think it was a privatized prison. Y'all go back and look at my archives, the thing I did on privatized prison. That's when I came across the school to prison pipeline. And this is very, very interesting to me. You know, uh, young kids, you know, but you know what? I, you know, the reason why I'm kind of hesitating to study a little bit, I almost got to talking about something. And uh, I don't want to start talking about what I'm going to talk about until after I present the school to prison pipeline little thing here to y'all. But this is very interesting about, you know, how kids come out of school. Like normally kids would come out of school, you know, normally you would prep kids in school for college. Right. But now what you're doing is you're almost prepping kids for prison in high school. And not only that, you're almost, you're almost prepping the kids and their family and their communities to be incarcerated. But we'll talk a little bit more about that on the other side. But this is a very interesting little thing here. And like I said, I'm trying to hold myself back from getting going because y'all know ideas when I get going, okay? So look here. I'm going to sit back here and I'm going to enjoy my Pedermo Maduro here. And while y'all take a listen to this, and then we're going to come back on the flip side and we're going to talk about some things, all right? All right, now, listen to this. Let's take a look at the school-to-prison pipeline. The school-to-prison pipeline is a process through which students are pushed out of schools and into prisons. In other words, it is a process of criminalizing youth that is carried out by disciplinary policies and practices within schools that put students into contact with law enforcement. Once they are put into contact with law enforcement for disciplinary reasons, many are then pushed out of the educational environment and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. The key policies and practices that created and now maintain the school-to-prison pipeline include zero-tolerance policies that mandate harsh punishments for both minor and major infractions, exclusion of students from schools through punitive suspensions and expulsions, and the presence of police on campus as school resource officers, SROs. 
The school-to-prison pipeline is supported by budgetary decisions made by the U.S. government. From 1987 to 2007, funding for incarceration more than doubled while funding for higher education was raised by just 21%, according to PBS. In addition, evidence shows that the school-to-prison pipeline primarily captures and affects black students, which mirrors the overrepresentation of this group in America's prisons and jails. How it works the two key forces that produced and now maintain the school-to-prison pipeline are the use of zero-tolerance policies that mandate exclusionary punishments and the presence of SROs on campuses. These policies and practices became common following a deadly spate of school shootings across the U.S. in the 1990s. Lawmakers and educators believed they would help to ensure safety on school campuses. Having a zero-tolerance policy means that a school has zero tolerance for any kind of misbehavior or violation of school rules, no matter how minor, unintentional, or subjectively defined it may be. In a school with a zero-tolerance policy, suspensions and expulsions are normal and common ways of dealing with student misbehavior. Impact of zero-tolerance policies Research shows that the implementation of zero-tolerance policies has led to significant increases in suspensions and expulsions. Citing a study by Mickey, education scholar Henry Giroux observed that, over a four-year period, suspensions increased by 51% and expulsions by nearly 32 times after zero-tolerance policies were implemented in Chicago schools. They jumped from just 21 expulsions in the 1994-95 school year to 668 in 1997-98. Similarly, Giroux cites a report from the Denver Rocky Mountain News that found that expulsions increased by more than 300% in the city's public schools between 1993 and 1997. Once suspended or expelled, Data show that students are less likely to complete high school, more than twice as likely to be arrested while on forced leave from school, and more likely to be in contact with the juvenile justice system during the year that follows the leave. In fact, sociologist David Ramey found, in a nationally representative study, that experiencing school punishment before the age of 15 is associated with contact with the criminal justice system for boys. Other research shows that students who do not complete high school are more likely to be incarcerated. How SROs Facilitate the Pipeline In addition to adopting harsh zero-tolerance policies, most schools across the country now have police present on campus on a daily basis and most states require educators to report student misbehavior to law enforcement. The presence of SROs on campus means that students have contact with law enforcement from a young age. Though their intended purpose is to protect students and ensure safety on school campuses, in many instances, the police handling of disciplinary issues escalates minor, nonviolent infractions into violent, criminal incidents that have negative impacts on students. By studying the distribution of federal funding for SROs and rates of school-related arrests, criminologist Emily G. Owens found that the presence of SROs on campus causes law enforcement agencies to learn of more crimes and increases the likelihood of arrest for those crimes among children under the age of 15. Christopher A. Mallet, a legal scholar and expert on the school-to-prison pipeline, reviewed evidence of the pipeline's existence and concluded that the increased use of zero-tolerance policies and police in the schools has exponentially increased arrests and referrals to the juvenile courts. Once they have made contact with the criminal justice system, data show that students are unlikely to graduate high school. Overall, what over a decade of empirical research on this topic proves is that zero-tolerance policies, punitive disciplinary measures like suspensions and expulsions, and the presence of SROs on campus have led to more students being pushed out of schools and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. In short, these policies and practices created the school-to-prison pipeline and sustain it today. But why exactly do these policies and practices make students more likely to commit crimes and end up in prison? Sociological theories and research help answer this question. 
institutions and authority figures criminalize students. One key sociological theory of deviance, known as labeling theory, contends that people come to identify and behave in ways that reflect how others label them. Applying this theory to the school-to-prison pipeline suggests that being labeled as a bad kid by school authorities or SROs, and being treated in a way that reflects that label, punitively, ultimately leads kids to internalize the label and behave in ways that make it real through action. In other words, it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Sociologist Victor Rios found just that in his studies of the effects of policing on the lives of black and Latinx boys in the San Francisco Bay Area. In his first book, Punished, Policing the Lives of Black and Latino Boys, Rios revealed through in-depth interviews and ethnographic observation how increased surveillance and attempts at controlling at-risk or deviant youth ultimately foster the very criminal behavior they are intended to prevent. In a social context in which social institutions label deviant youth as bad or criminal, and in doing so, strip them of dignity, fail to acknowledge their struggles, and do not treat them with respect, rebellion and criminality are acts of resistance. According to Rios, then, it is social institutions and their authorities that do the work of criminalizing youth. Exclusion from school, socialization into crime. The sociological concept of socialization also helps shed light on why the school-to-prison pipeline exists. After family, school is the second most important and formative site of socialization for children and adolescents where they learn social norms for behavior and interaction and receive moral guidance from authority figures. Removing students from schools as a form of discipline takes them out of this formative environment and important process, and it removes them from the safety and structure that the school provides. Many students who express behavioral issues at school are acting out in response to stressful or dangerous conditions in their homes or neighborhoods, so removing them from school and returning them to a problematic or unsupervised home environment hurts rather than helps their development. While removed from school during a suspension or expulsion, youth are more likely to spend time with others removed for similar reasons, and with those who are already engaged in criminal activity. Rather than being socialized by education-focused peers and educators, students who have been suspended or expelled will be socialized more by peers in similar situations. Because of these factors, the punishment of removal from school creates the conditions for the development of criminal behavior. Harsh punishment. Further, treating students as criminals when they have done nothing more than act out in minor, Nonviolent ways weakens the authority of educators, police, and other members of the juvenile and criminal justice sectors. The punishment does not fit the crime and so it suggests that those in positions of authority are not trustworthy, fair, and are even immoral. Seeking to do the opposite, authority figures who behave this way can actually teach students that they and their authority are not to be respected or trusted, which fosters conflict between them and students. This conflict then often leads to further exclusionary and damaging punishment experienced by students. The stigma of exclusion. Finally, once excluded from school and labeled bad or criminal, students often find themselves stigmatized by their teachers, parents, friends, parents of friends, and other community members. They experience confusion, stress, depression, and anger as a result of being excluded from school and from being treated harshly and unfairly by those in charge. This makes it difficult to stay focused on school and hinders motivation to study and desire to return to school and to succeed academically. Cumulatively, these social forces work to discourage academic studies, hinder academic achievement and even completion of high school, and push negatively labeled youth onto criminal paths and into the criminal justice system. Black and indigenous students face harsher punishments and higher rates of suspension and expulsion. While black people are just 13% of the total U.S. population, they comprise the greatest percentage of people in prisons and jails 40%. Latinx are also overrepresented in prisons and jails, but by far less. 
while they comprise 16% of the U.S. population they represent 19% of those in prisons and jails. In contrast, white people make up just 39% of the incarcerated population, despite the fact that they are the majority race in the U.S., comprising 64% of the national population. Data from across the U.S. that illustrate punishment and school-related arrests show that the racial disparity in incarceration begins with the school-to-prison pipeline. Research shows that both schools with large black populations and underfunded schools, many of which are majority-minority schools, are more likely to employ zero-tolerance policies. Nationwide, black and indigenous students face far greater rates of suspension and expulsion than do white students. In addition, data compiled by the National Center for Education Statistics show that while the percentage of white students suspended fell from 1999 to 2007, the percentage of black and Hispanic students suspended rose. A variety of studies and metrics show that black and indigenous students are punished more frequently and more harshly for the same, mostly minor, offenses than are white students. Legal and educational scholar Daniel J. Lozen points out that, though there is no evidence that these students misbehave more frequently or more severely than do white students, research from across the country shows that teachers and administrators punish them more especially black students. Lozen cites one study that found that the disparity is greatest among non-serious offenses like cell phone use, violations of dress code, or subjectively defined offenses like being disruptive or displaying affection. Black first-time offenders in these categories are suspended at rates that are double or more than those for white first-time offenders. According to the U.S. Department of Education's Office for Civil Rights, about 5% of white students have been suspended during their schooling experience, compared with 16% of black students. This means black students are more than three times as likely to be suspended than their white peers. Though they comprise just 16% of the total enrollment of public school students, black students comprise 32% of in-school suspensions and 33% of out-of-school suspensions. Troublingly, this disparity begins as early as preschool. Nearly half of all preschool students suspended are black, though they represent just 18% of total preschool enrollment. Indigenous students also face inflated suspension rates. They represent 2% of out-of-school suspensions, which is four times greater than the percentage of total enrolled students that they comprise. Black students are also far more likely to experience multiple suspensions. Though they are just 16% of the public school enrollment, they are a full 42% of those suspended multiple times. This means that their presence in the population of students with multiple suspensions is more than 2.6 times greater than their presence in the total population of students. Meanwhile, white students are underrepresented among those with multiple suspensions, at just 31%. These disparate rates play out not only within schools but also across districts on the basis of race. Data shows that in the Midlands area of South Carolina, suspension figures in a mostly black school district are double what they are in a mostly white one. There is also evidence that shows that the overly harsh punishment of black students is concentrated in the American South, where the legacy of human enslavement and Jim Crow exclusionary policies and violence against black people manifest in everyday life. Of the 1.2 million black students who were suspended nationwide during the 2011-2012 school year, more than half were located in 13 southern states. At the same time, half of all black students expelled were from these states. In many of the school districts located in there, black students comprised 100% of students suspended or expelled in a given school year. Among this population, students with disabilities are even more likely to experience exclusionary discipline. With the exception of Asian and Latinx students, Research shows that more than one out of four boys of color with disabilities, and nearly one in five girls of color with disabilities receives an out-of-school suspension. Meanwhile, 
research shows that white students who express behavioral issues in school are more likely to be treated with medicine, which reduces their chances of ending up in jail or prison after acting out in school. Black students face higher rates of school-related arrests and removal from school system. Given that there is a connection between the experience of suspensions and engagement with the criminal justice system, and given that racial bias within education and among police is well documented, it is no surprise that black and Latinx students comprise 70% of those who face referral to law enforcement or school-related arrests. Once they are in contact with the criminal justice system, as the statistics on the school-to-prison pipeline cited above demonstrate, students are far less likely to complete high school. Those that do may do so in alternative schools for students labeled as juvenile delinquents, many of which are unaccredited and offer lower quality education than they would receive in public schools. Others who are placed in juvenile detention centers or prison may receive no educational resources at all. The racism embedded in the school-to-prison pipeline is a significant factor in producing the reality that black and Latinx students are far less likely than their white peers to complete high school and that black, Latinx, and American indigenous people are much more likely than white people to end up in jail or prison. What all of these data show us is that not only is the school-to-prison pipeline very real, but also, it is fueled by racial bias and produces racist outcomes that cause great harm to the lives, families, and communities of people of color across the United States. Now, let's take a look at the policy statement on discipline and the school-to-prison pipeline. 1. Introduction The school-to-prison pipeline disproportionately places students of color, including those who identify as LGBTQ, have disabilities, and slash or are English language learners, into the criminal justice system for minor school infractions and disciplinary matters, subjecting them to harsher punishments than their white peers for the same behaviors. The school-to-prison pipeline diminishes their educational opportunities and life trajectories. All educators, which includes every school employee, are key to ending the school-to-prison pipeline. NIA's resolution state NIA's firm belief that schools must be safe and welcoming for all students, discriminatory toward none, and focused on educational practices that reach the whole child and disciplinary policies that emphasize prevention and rehabilitation over punishment, see, Example Resolutions B6, B14, F, H, K, B71, C7, C28, C39. NIA's resolutions also reflect NIA's belief that all education employees must be provided professional development in behavior management, discipline, and conflict resolution, D18, and that both education employees and parents need training to help students deal with stress and anger. C7. NIA also believes that equally important is deepening educator awareness about their actions and the impact on students. The purpose of this policy statement is not to modify existing NIA resolutions, but to explain how NIA will act on its already stated beliefs to end the school-to-prison pipeline. 2. Definitions For purposes of this policy statement, the following definitions apply. School-to-prison pipeline means the policies and practices that are directly and indirectly pushing students of color out of school and on a pathway to prison, including, but not limited to, harsh school discipline policies that overuse suspension and expulsion, increased policing and surveillance that create prison-like environments in schools, over-reliance on referrals to law enforcement and the juvenile justice system, and an alienating and punitive high-stakes testing-driven academic environment. Institutional racism means the norms, policies, and practices that are structured into political, societal and economic institutions that have the net effect of imposing oppressive conditions and denying rights, opportunity, and equality to identifiable groups based upon race or ethnicity. Zero-tolerance policies mean school disciplinary polices that set predetermined consequences or punishments for specific offenses or rule infractions. 
Zero tolerance policies forbid persons in positions of authority from exercising discretion or changing punishments to fit individual circumstances. Restorative practices are processes that proactively build healthy relationships and a sense of community to prevent and address conflict and wrongdoing. Restorative practices are increasingly being applied in individual schools and school districts to address youth behavior, rule violations, and to improve school climate and culture. Restorative practices can improve relationships between students, between students, and educators, and even between educators, whose behavior often serves as a role model for students. They allow each member of the school community to develop and implement a school's adopted core values. Restorative practices allow individuals who may have committed harm to take full responsibility for their behavior by addressing the individual, s, affected by the behavior. Taking responsibility requires understanding how the behavior affected others, acknowledging that the behavior was harmful to others, taking action to repair the harm, and making changes necessary to avoid such behavior in the future. Restorative practices also represent a mindset that can help guide adult and youth behavior and relationship management in schools, not another program. They are not intended to replace current initiatives and evidence-based programs like positive behavior interventions and supports, PBIS, or social and emotional learning models that assist in building a foundation and culture of caring. Programs and initiatives like PBIS complement restorative practices. Cultural competence means the capacity to interact effectively and respectfully with people from different racial, ethnic, and slash or economic backgrounds. Such competence includes understanding that different cultures have different communication codes and styles, being open to learning from others, to shift out of one's own cultural paradigm, and to refrain from judging people before honestly exploring what motivates their behavior. Implicit bias means the deep-seated attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner. To educate the whole child means to use all available resources to maximize the achievement, skills, opportunities, and potential of each student by building upon his or her strengths and addressing his or her needs. A whole child approach prepares students to thrive in a democratic and diverse society and changing world as knowledgeable, creative, engaged citizens and lifelong learners. 3. Ending the school-to-prison pipeline. The school-to-prison pipeline deprives students of color of their futures by pushing them out of school and its pathway to college and careers, and into the juvenile and criminal justice systems. The pipeline is the result of an array of policies and practices, fed by institutional racism, that disproportionately affects students of color, including those who identify as LGBTQ, have disabilities, and slash or are English language learners. The policies and practices include harsh school discipline policies that overuse suspension and expulsion, zero-tolerance policies that criminalize minor infractions of school rules, increased policing and surveillance in schools that create prison-like environments in schools, and over-reliance on exclusionary disciplinary referrals to law enforcement and juvenile justice authorities. Students who are suspended or expelled not only fall behind academically but are significantly more likely to drop out of school altogether, fail to secure a job, rely on social welfare programs and end up in prison. As educators, NIA and its members are committed to changing the policies and practices of the schools in which we work to end the school-to-prison pipeline. Our work to that end will be guided by the following five principles. Guiding Principle 1, Eliminating Disparities in Discipline Practices Disciplinary policies and practices should not have a disparate impact based on students of color, including those who identify as LGBTQ, have disabilities, and slash or are English language learners. NIA will advocate for schools, school districts, and states to review their disciplinary policies and practices for any such disparate impact, to take prompt and effective action to eliminate any disparate impact that is found, and to continue to monitor disciplinary policies and practices to ensure that they are fair and non-discriminatory. Guiding Principle 2, 
creating a supportive and nurturing school climate. NIA will promote awareness of, and support the development of, effective school disciplinary procedures that support high expectations for quality instruction and learning, treat students respectfully, and provide all students with a supportive and nurturing school environment. NIA recognizes that educators play an essential role in developing such procedures and creating a school community that promotes respectful, caring and trusting positive relationships among students and adults. NIA also recognizes that other stakeholders must also be fully engaged in that effort including local affiliates, local school boards, community organizations, and members as well as family members. Guiding Principle 3, Professional Training and Development NIA believes that educators must be better prepared to respond to the social and emotional needs of each student. All school staff must understand what it means to be culturally competent and responsive. Educators must be given the tools to develop the skills needed to interact with students from different racial, ethnic, and economic backgrounds. NIA must encourage stakeholders to work together to develop and implement, with fidelity, training that is proven, substantial, and ongoing, and professional development tools that are responsive to the needs of students and educators and that build and increase educators' cultural competence over the course of their careers. At a minimum, such training and professional development shall include, 1. Developing communication skills including strategies for peer-to-peer, educator-to-parent, educator-to-student, and student-to-educator communication. 2. Developing cultural competence including awareness of one's own implicit biases, understanding culturally competent pedagogy and becoming cultural responsive in one's approach to education and discipline. 3. Training developed for, and delivered to, pre-service, early career, and experienced educators. And 4 an understanding of educational trauma and its impact on a student's education. Guiding Principle 4, Partnerships and Community Engagement NNEA will use its existing partnerships with education partners, students, parents, community-based organizations, and social justice advocacy groups to a. raise awareness of the school-to-prison pipeline, b. eliminate disparate discipline policies and practices, c. develop and implement the necessary professional development and training for school staff, and d build respectful and supportive school environments. NIA will also participate in, and build upon, existing coalitions by bringing together diverse groups of education and social justice stakeholders for the purpose of identifying and sharing policies, practices, and activities to end the school-to-prison pipeline. To that end, NIA will foster relationships with community-based nonprofits, school districts, peer mentoring groups, mental health organizations, churches, professional associations, alternative school-slash-juvenile correctional institutions, law enforcement, and national and state advocacy groups. Guiding Principle 5, Student and Family Engagement In order to change school cultures, the social and emotional needs of students must be strengthened and supported through education, parental and community partnerships and relationship building. Students, parents, and other caregivers need to be engaged and trained in problem-solving techniques, conflict resolution skills, anger management, and other skills. Students need to be invested in their own success and understand why taking responsibility for their conduct is important. As part of this effort, NIA encourages the development and implementation of restorative practices to build healthy relationships and a community to prevent and address conflict and wrongdoing. 4. Advocacy and Action NIA believes that one-size-fits-all discipline policies, such as zero-tolerance, harsh disciplinary approaches, and toxic testing endanger educational opportunities and make dropout and incarceration more likely for millions of students. NIA will lead efforts to end the school-to-prison pipeline by focusing its work in two areas, awareness and advocacy. Awareness. NIA believes that there must be increased awareness among its members and the public about the school-to-prison pipeline and the ongoing, 
widespread disparate outcomes in discipline practices. NIA should raise awareness of the benefits of professional development and training in cultural competency, implicit bias, and restorative practices. NIA and its affiliates must continually examine and highlight data to illustrate the problems with the school-to-prison pipeline and the impact on students of color. NIA encourages schools and districts to provide educators with intensive training and professional development, along with access to tools on classroom management and model discipline practices. Advocacy NIA has a responsibility to advocate for discipline policies and procedures, legislation, and practices that will end the school-to-prison pipeline. Advocacy must include the continual identification of model school districts that have enacted fair and effective discipline policies. As educators, NIA is in the best position to develop model discipline policies that encourage the use of fair and effective discipline practices, and discourage the use of school-based arrests and referrals to law enforcement, before educators attempt corrective action. NIA must continuously advocate for the elimination of unjust policies and practices that fuel the school-to-prison pipeline. And last, but certainly not least, let's never see another first grader in handcuffs. Time to end the school-to-prison pipeline that starts in early childhood. Two first graders in Florida are not the same children today as they were last month. Consider the distress, fear, and confusion that being forcibly taken, handcuffed and driven away from your school by a police officer would cause in any six-year-old you know. Imagine it's your child, your grandchild. We both worked in the Obama administration, one of us as a senior policy advisor for early childhood development, and the other as a deputy assistant to the president and policy lead on criminal justice reform. Though we shared an office suite at the White House, our work worlds rarely collided. The main exception? School discipline, an issue that brings together two topics that should be separate, early childhood and criminal justice. Last month, our worlds collided again. Two six-year-old black children were arrested for incidents in their first-grade classroom in Florida. The officer involved in the incident was fired. But that doesn't erase the trauma that those children faced and will continue to face. It doesn't fix the system that enabled the officer's behavior. Criminalizing the developmentally appropriate behavior of black children is something that's been happening for generations. In past years, there have been other well-publicized cases of school resource officers handcuffing children whose hands are too small for handcuffs, putting children small enough to require a booster seat in patrol cars and driving them to the police station. The Office of Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention in the U.S. Department of Justice reports that more than 230,000 children aged 14 and under were arrested in 2017, although the office does not publicly report data broken down into smaller age groups. The disproportionately harsh discipline that black children encounter often begins when children are literally in or just transitioning out of diapers. In fact, Data indicate that preschoolers are expelled from their learning settings at three or four times the rate of children in grades K-12, and that black preschoolers are more than three times as likely to be suspended than their white peers. From this early age, and across the entire K-12 continuum, black children are disproportionately the victims of exclusionary discipline. And yet there is no evidence that black children have worse behavior than peers. There is research, however, to indicate that when presented with identical behavioral records, teachers are more likely to rate the behavior of black children as more problematic and recommend harsher punishments. Studies have found that black children are also more often disciplined for subjective behaviors, example disrespect, defiance, that are at the discretion of adult decision makers, while white children are more likely to be disciplined for objective offenses, example smoking. We've seen consent decrees between the U.S. Department of Justice and communities due to this very issue cases in which black children are disciplined more harshly and more often, and are subject to longer suspensions, than their white peers for similar behaviors, even when the children were at the same school, 
of the same age and had similar disciplinary histories. The racial disproportionality in school expulsion looks remarkably similar to the disproportionality in imprisonment rates. Federal data from 2014 indicate that black children made up 33% of all children suspended, while a recent Pew Research Center analysis found that black adults make up 33% of the total prison population. These men and women are in prison not solely due to a broken criminal justice system, but also to a society that continuously criminalizes children for being children if their skin happens to be black or brown. The school-to-prison pipeline is alive and well. And it starts in early childhood. During our time in the Obama administration, we did extensive work on school discipline. The Departments of Education and Health and Human Services joined forces to release the first policy statement to address exclusionary discipline in early learning settings. We worked with Congress to secure more funding for early childhood mental health support. The Departments of Justice and Education came together to issue guidance on school discipline reform. We brought together school leaders from across the country to share best practices. It wasn't enough for us to stress that children shouldn't be expelled, we were sadly forced to add that children shouldn't be arrested either. An astounding 33 states don't have a minimum age for criminal liability. That means it's legal to prosecute a five-year-old in juvenile court. In the states that do have minimums, the policies are barely better. South Carolina, for example, has a minimum age. It is six. In another five states, the age is seven. In a promising move, New York City recently updated a Giuliani-era policy that gave police officers the ability to arrest any child, for any behavior, with a new policy that says police officers should not arrest children for low-level offenses such as spitting or disorderly conduct, and that school officials should not call law enforcement for code of conduct violations like tardiness or dress code violations. This policy change is part of a more comprehensive effort by Mayor Bill de Blasio to curb the school-to-prison pipeline and reform school discipline in the city. The incidents in Florida shake the conscience, but are less surprising given the Trump Devo's agenda to shift away from addressing the school-to-prison pipeline. Last December, the Trump administration rescinded Obama-era school discipline guidance, misleadingly citing school safety concerns. This effort came after the U.S. Department of Education made clear that civil rights enforcement isn't a priority. The president's budget asked for a decrease in funding for civil rights enforcement. In just the first two years of the Trump administration, the Office for Civil Rights saw a 12.5% drop in full-time employees. The Education Department also instituted a new protocol for reviewing cases that resulted in the dismissal of hundreds of potentially serious complaints and made the policy decision to avoid looking at systemic issues and biases surrounding complaints. In its latest move, the Education Department has proposed to reduce and fundamentally change the civil rights data collection. Most concerning is its proposal to stop collecting preschooler enrollment data by race, which would significantly hinder our ability to assess access to opportunity for our nation's youngest learners. It is much easier to hide facts than to deal with them. This continues the not-so-covered strategy of Trump and Devos to ignore racial disparities and perpetuate policies that have a disproportionately negative effect on students of color. These backward policies don't make schools safer. They do, however, enable and even encourage the types of incidents that we saw in Florida last month. States and early childhood systems should ban expulsions and suspensions from the early years through the early grades, and significantly limit such punishments in the upper grades. Kicking preschoolers out of school does the exact opposite of what early education purports to do, prepare children for school. The federal government and states should get serious about funding interventions that support social and emotional development, like early childhood mental health consultation and positive behavioral interventions and supports, both of which have been proven to reduce exclusionary discipline. To address the specific issue of racial disparities in discipline, however, schools, 
districts and states must attend to the biases that fuel them from implicit bias at the individual teacher, administrator, or school resource officer level to systemic biases in policies and funding. One of the most powerful tools to identify and address biases at the systemic level is disaggregated data. The first publication of preschool suspension data released by the Education Department in 2014 prompted policy change at the federal, state and local levels. Since then, over 30 states have passed legislation on the issue. On the criminal justice side, states should raise the minimum age for criminal liability. Some reforms are complicated. This one is a no-brainer. Funding should prioritize school counselors over school resource officers. In general, School resource officers should be better trained and specifically prohibited from addressing in-school conduct that doesn't risk serious injury to students or staff. And very young children should never be arrested or otherwise introduced to the juvenile justice system. It's time we examine the full context of the school-to-prison pipeline and close the cracks that have been intentionally made to trap black and brown children. We must continue the fight to right the perpetuated wrongs of decades past, while also actively pushing back against the new wrongs perpetrated by the nation's highest education and law enforcement officials. We are dear friends, but we do not want our professional worlds to continue colliding. We do not want here early childhood and criminal justice in the same sentence. Let children learn, let educators teach, and let mental health professionals support both children and teachers. And let's make it clear to police officers that they will not be police officers for long if they arrest another six-year-old. The firing of the Florida police officer involved in last month's incident is a good start. After reading this and so much over the past few weeks, I'm left to ask myself. Why does the world hate black people so much? Opinions will vary on this one, no doubt. Fortunately, this is my column, so mine is the only one that matters here. The world is very clear on its feelings toward black people, but the question I pose is why? What did black people do collectively to the world to warrant such aggressive behavior toward us? From the shores of Africa to the white-owned Spanish slave ships of Europeans. From the first slave auction in America to the first lash of a whip cracking across the black back of a slave. The black experience in America has been a total and complete failure since the first slave transaction was finalized in 1619. For so long, we had no role model to look up to, until Frederick Douglass rose from the ashes of nothingness to shape black intelligence in America. During slavery, black people had to endure forced labor, had to learn a religion they never heard of, had to allow their infant children to be used as alligator bait, and had to live like they were less than human. They were treated like animals, really. Then, in 1865, the Civil War ended, and slaves were freed, sort of. However, keep in mind that white Democrat-dominated states had no interest in giving black people equal protection under the law, which the 15th Amendment would have given them, were it ratified that year. It was, however, ratified in 1868. So what were freed blacks from 1865 to 1868? Residents. We were, and still are to this day, simply residents of the United States, not citizens. Moreover, both the Star-Spangled Banner and the Declaration of Independence of the United States either flatly ignore the fact that freed slaves are people or boldly advocates violence toward them. Then, we got segregation the Jim Crow era, when the southern states passed laws that alienated blacks in every aspect of life. At the time, America was covered in signs that read no coloreds. Multiple generations of blacks lived and died with those words burned into their memories. Those signs relegated whether black people could eat at a restaurant, shop at a store, sit in a public park, drink from a water fountain, use a public restroom, ride a bus, hail a taxi, and so on. When white society told us we were not welcome once the shackles came off, we had no choice but to start from scratch.
Oddly enough, enterprises like Black Wall Street in Tulsa OK began. Individuals such as Booker T. Washington, Madam C.J. Walker, W.E.B. Dubois and Marcus Garvey came into prominence. What is terribly ironic is that, for a time, Black Wall Street flourished economically, until white racists decided to change that and devastated the entire city with the aid of the Tulsa Police Department by using bombs and gunfire. Stories like this echo from the past, voiceless and lost in time, but desperate to resurface for the here and now. It is probably because black patients have done the most for scientific research since the turn of the 20th century. Don't believe me, look up Henrietta Lacks or the Tuskegee syphilis experiment. I think it is essentially a case of what human beings have witnessed, generally, over the last 500 years. Namely, what humans have witnessed is a lot of European, white, dominance and prosperity and a lot of African, black, misery and chaos. I don't think we can casually put aside the role that the centuries-long transatlantic slave trade played in shaping this world's view of black inferiority and white superiority, as well as the later trend of European powers conquering and colonizing various non-white nations. Even though most people would rather forget, many of the historically racist views throughout the world went far beyond a mere belief that one race was superior to another. Some people, even today, questioned if blacks were fully evolved. And apparently, white people weren't the only ones wondering. Colorism ran rampant among black people in America, and abroad, and it still runs today, to an extent. Note the skin lightening industry in Africa. Hell, look at the similar reality in India and the Philippines. Consider the hot-button conversations surrounding black hair, especially with women. I remember my teen years. I don't recall any news stories that portray black people, as a people, as anything other than victims, problems, or an overall pitiful situation. There were always exceptions to the rules, of course, from George Washington Carver to May Carol Jemison. But as a people, we never seemed to be on the forefront of anything admirable besides arts, entertainment, sports, and the civil rights movement. Or, at least, it seemed that way. I remember when Ethiopia was experiencing a horrific famine in the 1980s, and a long roster of sympathetic American rock stars organized a huge benefit concert to help. Interestingly, it was around the same time Japan, a vanquished nation from World War II, was kicking butt seemingly in every way, technologically and economically. As a black kid growing up, observing these images consistently throughout my life, at some point I, and many of my peers, could not help but ask, what happened to us? I only say that to say this, if we have been asking ourselves that question for all these years, then surely non-blacks have been doing the same. The Earth's population is ingrained with the idea that black people are something other than completely equal. That's just reality. And it takes a certain amount of education and perspective to make sense of it. But unfortunately, most people don't want to be bothered. Black people are looked down upon because many of them remain in impoverished situations after the past hundred years of oppression and colonization. When cultures clash over resources, you have the physical conflict of wars and colonization, but you also have societal clashes. With superior power, European and other cultures were able to establish a narrative by which African people were labeled as primitive or barbaric. This would then be associated with the presumption of a lack of intelligence, and often combined with religious racism the belief that the more powerful group found success by the will of God, that they were the chosen ones, surrounded by lesser people. The same thing can be seen anywhere colonialism occurred, where the dominant, invading culture looks down upon the godless heathens. That Africans and their descendants were targeted for discrimination is a result of this mindset, which became self-affirming. The circular logic was that Africa was undeveloped because the people were inferior, so it was justified to subjugate African cultures, which further prevented them from advancing, 
which reinforced the judgment that there was something lesser about the people and the culture. Ooh, doggy, what y'all think about that? School to prison pipeline. What do America and the world got against black folks? Mm, mm, mm. Man, look at here. Now, you know what? When I first looked at this thing here, now I kind of did hear something about something down here in Florida about that six-year-old, you know, that this incident happened to. But I didn't pay it much mind back then because, you know, like we in our own world a lot of times. If it don't happen to us or around us, then we don't too much pay no attention to it. You see what I'm saying? But that's kind of a shame, though. I mean, can you imagine something like this, like like the article was saying, you know, when it was some little white kid have some type of... Um, uh, can't sit still disorder or full of a little tamper. Like you go in the grocery, in the grocery. Like I mean, when I, like when I was a little kid, I remember when I was a little kid down in Louisiana. When we, when we go in the grocery store, you know, we had to have our hands side by side, you know, in our pockets, you know, or or, or, or at attention almost. My mother and dad, you say, boy, don't y'all better not touch nothing. Y'all better touch nothing that y'all can't pay for. That trouble was a little, little. I remember that clear as day. You walk in the store, you couldn't have been, when somebody say something to you, you had to say, yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. And I'm still like that to this day, because that's how I was raised. Even when I go into a store, I put my hands in my pocket. If I ain't got no money, I can give him pocket. But then, I can remember also as a little fella, and you can see that now. You go in the store with little white kids, they be all acting up, falling all on the floor, ah, screaming all that, like little bandages. Doing all kind of stuff, knocking stuff over. Don't nobody say nothing to them. Even the parents don't say nothing to them. Oh, come on, little Johnny, stop, little Johnny. That the black parents back in the day can't do that knock and you go to jail. Black parents back in the day slap hard and slap the heck out of you. I know my mother would if I went to the store and picked up something I had no money for, even looked at a, 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 a Reese's peanut butter cup. How much I pick up a little Reese's peanut butter cup looking at it? My mother slapped the heck out of me. Because you don't do that. You had to have manners. But see, little white kids, they, they have temper tantrum all the time. Nobody say anything. Now, that little black girl go to school, she had temper tantrum. What did they call the police on her? And then in other incidents, when young kids, when you get to the point where you're calling the police on young kids, and you're introducing young kids to, to, uh, to the judicial system at an early age, that ain't right. And like the article said, see, a lot of times people say that there is no systemic racism. There is systemic racism. People, y'all need to stop. Y'all need to stop thinking there ain't no systemic racism. There's always been systemic racism. When you call red line, that's systemic. Right when when you can call it, uh, this 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 uh, when systems systems are set up like this here to 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 uh, to get young kids in, into a system when you when you building more prisons taking more money out the school system isn't that something isn't it so even Trump and I and I, I was an admirer of Trump you know when Obama 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 had legislating in there, were trying to help the school system out, allocating money to the school system, doing a little research to find out what's going on. Trump come along and reverse it, take, uh, take the money, put the money somewhere else instead of, the, instead of the school system. Nobody don't want to educate these kids. Nobody don't want to find out what's going on with a kid. If a kid is young and have a temper tantrum, come to school have a temper tantrum, then there's something wrong at home. See, the root, see, we don't want to look at the root cause things in America anymore. We don't want to look at the root causes. We just want to push everything under the rug. And when you allocate more money to the prison system, to the judicial system, the prosecutors get more money for retrying cases, cases they lose over and over again with no budget. 
But yeah, you can't get money to teachers. You know, and even they say they, they say these these research these uh these SROs, what these uh these these security resource officers or whatever they call, you know, they 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 it, which what which they should be just called police inside the school. You're taking money from the school counselors. Counselors who sit down, if a child is having a problem like that little sixth grade gal, you sit up to the car counselor. That's how it was with our little fella. You had, a, you, you had an issue, they sent you to the counselor office. This little guy got a problem with it. They called the police on him. They call these resource officers who ain't nothing but police officers. They're not trained on, on, on psychology and like a counselor sound and talk to a kid. All they know is the handcuff and send somebody to jail and put you in the system. But you're taking money from school teachers. You're taking money from, 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 uh, from, from, from counselors who can help the kids, who communicate with the kids, who, who, who can look into the kids' home life and see if there's anything that they could possibly do to help there. But see, there's no help. But like in the article say, if you got a little white kid, what it is? You send him down to the counselor. You call his parents and you give him some Ritalin. Or you stop giving him too much candy. Or you, or, 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 or you, or you, or you kind of hold back on him while playing too many of them, them, them games, them, 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 them Nintendo games where they be shooting, shooting, killing each other. Where he'd be all wired up and jacked up from watching them doggone, uh, 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 what they call that game? Uh, Grand Theft Auto, all that old crazy crap. The system, there's always been systemic racism. Some of us just learn how to deal with it. Because you have to deal with it. You can't stop it. You have to learn how to deal with it. And those who can't deal with it, they end up living in poverty, or they end up in prison, or they end up dead, or they end up on drugs before they end up anywhere. Because the system is set up that way. I was watching the show the other day. I was sitting there. I was sitting watching a show. You know, you get into them uh, YouTube rabbit holes. I'm looking through YouTube, and they got and they got this one. I don't know if it's a guy who it is, but what they do is they put a camera on front of their car, and they drive down these different neighborhoods in different cities, these bad neighborhoods, and they drove down Philly. I swear, it looked like another world. It was filthy, nasty, trash everywhere. People walking around like zombies. You know, people living in those kind of conditions, like, they don't even see the trash. They don't see the tires piled up. They don't see all the bars. You walk in down the row houses in Philly, you see the bars on, on the, uh, not on the windows, not on the doors, the bars on the whole front porch. The whole front porch is bars. Not just door and window, the whole front porch is bars. You can, when you go and sit on your front porch, you sit behind bars. That is conditioning you to live in a prison state. You, those people are, when those people go to jail, they're already conditioned living behind bars. That's why I always say when I was a little boy, I little boy, I say I never get no bars put on my door or on my windows. Like when I was up there in Michigan. I ain't never seen no bars or no doors until we moved, my mother moved us to Michigan. We have all that in Louisiana. Louisiana, you can leave, you, you, you can leave your door open all night. Nobody, nobody don't bother you. But I'm going to Michigan. I'm seeing bars on windows, bars on doors. 
Like, what's going on here? And I swore that I would never live under those type of conditions. Because that is conditioning you for penitentiary. When you got to live in a neighborhood where you got to have bars on your doors and your windows. I say, no, no, not me. When I grow up, I'm, I'm not going to be living like that. You a prisoner inside your own home. That's a mentality. And these mentalities start when we're young. They start when we're young. And people know that. So that's why you have, you, have, you have school to prison pipeline. This stuff started when they're young. We're going to take these little black kids, right? And we're going to start out. We're going to put them in the system. We're going to start out. We're going to get them used to the judicial system early. We're going to put them in the system early. Like I was listening to Mike Tyson talk. Mike Tyson was talking about uh, when he was in juvenile home. 10. 9, 10, 11, in juvenile home, he say where he learned how to fight at, where, 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 where he learned how to hustle at, where he was surrounded by some of the violent little kids there was. And you wonder why Mike Tyson was a good fighter, why he had so much anger? When you, at 10, 11 years old, when you in the juvenile system, and all your peers, everybody else, nothing but black little kids. Juvenile system. Mike Tyson talked about it on this podcast. The majority of the kids, it was about 90% in there, black. Little black kids. 10, 11 years old in prison. When it was in Brownsville, somewhere up there, Mike Tyson talked about it. And then I hear other stories of the same thing. Kids growing up in, in, these, in, these, in this judicial system at a young age. There is no rehabilitation. When, when, let me tell you something. When, 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 you, when you put an animal with an animal, it ain't no rehabilitation. You put a wolf with a bunch of wolves, ain't no rabbit coming out. But they, they putting these black kids in these systems. Now, I say black kids, but black brown kids. See, not many little Caucasian kids get put into these systems at a young age. Because either they got the money or they got some resources for habilitation for them. Now, if, if one they just can't handle them now, they're going to throw him in there to teach him a lesson. Right? But they ain't going to leave him in there too long. See, y'all, this is systemic racism. See, I was one myself. I say, well, you know, you know, systemic racism, uh, maybe before, but not now. But there's always been systemic racism. Systemic racism, to me, is when you make legislation. Right? When you make rules, when you put processes in place, right, that, that not discriminates, but holds a group of people back, or make an obstacle so big that it's hard for them to get over, then that's systemic. Now, let me tell you something. That's a very interesting thing I was thinking about. I was saying, I was saying, you know, why does America hate black people so much? Just, it bothers me. Just everything that I've been reading lately, and I'm an open-minded person. I have a lot of good friends all across all kind of walks. But when you look at the system, see, people, when people say racism, people say, oh, no, me, I'm not racism. It's not about you. Racism, to me, is the people who make these laws who make these rules, who put these systems in place. 
Not my cigar buddies. Not my co-workers. They don't make these laws. They don't make these rules. They don't even vote on these laws and these rules that go into effect. They don't vote on them. Well, indirectly they do vote on them because a lot of them, nope, 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 they don't because a lot of, a lot of stuff when they put in these cars, I was just about to say they vote or they do vote on them because when you have these, when you have these bills, when they want to pass these bills in the White House and Congress, they may have a 5,000 page bill. Knowing that people don't read all them bills, and they may have these little these, these, these little systemic racism clauses in there that you don't know about, like in this bill that Trump reversed. I didn't know nothing about this. Trump reversed the bill that had that that that, that took money, took a money away from uh, away from resources for kids for rehabilitation, took that money and, and, and gave that money to somebody else. Oh, we don't need that program. Gave that money to law enforcement or whatever. Y'all, y'all listen to it. Y'all heard. I ain't telling y'all nothing you ain't never heard. They don't care nothing about the kids. America cares nothing about educating its kids anymore. Because we don't need everybody educated, is what they probably say. We only need a few. We only need a few educated. We don't need everybody educated. This whole thing I'm talking about right now is dismantling of the American education system. When you take more money and put more more, uh, more money into giving away to foreign countries and all that kind of stuff than you do putting into the schools to educate your kids, that's because they don't want every kid educated. Especially don't want color kids educated. And what I mean color, I don't mean just black. I mean, black, brown, Latino. See, Asians ride above, rise above that because Asian takes personal responsibility into their kids. Now, one thing I'm also a, 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 a opponent of, I'm a opponent of parents taking, taking responsibility. If you know there's a systematic um, clog in the system, not to educate your kids, not to give your kids any resources, no type of support for anything, then parents, you automatically have a personal responsibility to teach your kid. Like we were a little fella. Like, like we were went somewhere, how we were manable, how we carried ourselves because our parents taught us. See, when you, when you become a victim of systemic racism or systemic whatever that's negative towards your culture, then you got to take personal responsibility of teaching your kid. Now, a lot of people didn't even they want to homeschool their kids. That old homeschool stuff to me ain't nothing but an old racket. Because they ain't teaching their kids nothing. They're sending their kids at home. All they need is babysitting their kids at home. That's all they do. They teach them nothing. You cannot homeschool. You can't, your kid can't get no good homeschooling t- education. Especially with no dumb parents. I be wondering sometimes, how do you, I see some of these parents, right? I be thinking to myself, how this person will be home, homeschooling their kid when they just as dumb as a bag of rocks? But then somebody say, well, there's a program that you can go online, you can get the, you get the homeschooling program, and your kid can learn on, on the computer at home. To me, that's dumb. That's ignorant. Just like, here, just like with the corona thing. They want to take kids, and they want to have kids learn at home. Go at home. Get on the computer. Every kid ain't got no computer. Everybody can't afford Wi-Fi. Once you got four or five kids in the house, everybody can't have their own personal laptop. People can't afford that. 
Plus, kids need to learn in a social environment because it's just not about read math and, t- math and write and all that kind of stuff. It's about the social aspect of it. That like when kids go to college. They go to college what? The first two years of college, they screw up because they say it's the, you know, it's the college experience. They want to get drunk, have sex and all that kind of stuff. Then maybe in the 11, 12, 11 uh, juniors and senior year of college, they want to get serious about their education. But the first year is all about the college experience. So that's what they go for. Okay? But see, we got kids, parents have to start taking responsibility. Because this government don't want to teach your kid. The government can make more off your kid by putting them in jail. The government can make more money by putting your kid in the system. Right? The judicial system is way big. It's a shame when the judicial system is bigger than the cool, bigger than the school system. Now, I remember one time I used to talk, I used to talk side mouth about uh, uh, teachers. You know, the teachers union. Why are they so big? Why are they so powerful? Why? Why teachers? I, I was ignorant. I ain't know. Teachers don't make nearly as much as they should. And then when you go to school today, they're teaching the kids nothing. It's more about social. It's more, it's more about teaching today in school. It's more about social behavior with the schools instead of teaching the kids the foundation of what they need to know in order for them to have critical thinking when they come out of school. Teachers all teaching, teaching. They is all about you know. Ain't nobody got no gun in here. They do y'all. <laughs> Search that one right there before you come in. Put up a metal detector in front of, in front of, in, in, in front of the school. So when the kid come to school and he go to a metal detector, it's just like him going to jail. You see how they condition? See how they condition kids? A metal detector. Check the good kids. Make sure they got no knives and no guns on them. Frisk them. When you go to school, you put them all, all, you put them all, all through this, this uh, you see safety training just in case a shooter come. Or just in case they ain't learning, they ain't teaching the kids nothing. All they're teaching them is how to go to jail. That's all they're teaching the kids. It, it, it's a shame. It's, you know, it's just a shame how America, and I'll be wondering, who are the people that's behind all this? Who are the people? I don't know who they is. Y'all know, G6, G4, Illuminati. Man, I don't know nothing about all that old stuff. But I'm just saying, somebody making these rules, and these rules are being passed because they put they, these rules, the, these legislators is being put in these bills that nobody read. That's how this stuff doing get getting done. That's how ex ex prison getting this, uh, this high amount of money. You don't you don't know what privatized prisons getting because all this stuff is in the bill. Because some congressman, he, he want to make some money. He want to bring jobs to his community, right? So he builds a prison. Somebody builds a prison. So he needs money allocated to his prison. So in, in, order, in, in, order, in order for Trump or, 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 um, or Biden, in order, for them, in order for them to get anything, they got to give him X amount of money for that prison in his district. So he, so Biden just can't come out, or Trump just can't come out and say, "Well, I'm gonna give you X amount of dollars, you know, uh, for that prison," because that's not what the American people want. But in order to get your vote, right, 
write it up, and put it somewhere on these pages and these bills where ain't nobody going to read it. The bill is 5,000 pages. Put it on page 4,992. Ain't nobody going to read it. Nope, don't, 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 don't put it that close to the back. Put it somewhere in the middle. And make it short. And make it, and, and make it gray. Don't make it black and white. Make it gray. And you give me your vote, and we allocate when this, when this bill passed, we'll fund it. This side of stuff getting through. And, and, and let me tell y'all something. Systemic racism is the word, but a lot of times, I'm going to tell you, it's all about money. This is what it's all about. The bottom line of it is all about money. Just like the example I gave y'all. If you build juvenile homes and incarceration centers, you have to fill them up. You have to fill them up. You know, you got you, you got you got prison union lawyers and uh, 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 guards and medical staff. It's a it's a whole ecosystem that you have to keep fed. And they it's just too bad that they they start young, putting kids in the system. Everybody want a job. Everybody want to justify their existence. It's just a shame how America, how we doing our kids, how we doing our educators. It's, it's, it's really a shame. It's really a shame. I, I, really, I really don't understand it, what's going on. But the more I read, the more I research, things come bubbling up. Can y'all imagine your, your child if you one of your child go to school and they start having a pissy fit and the resource officer comes in and put handcuffs on your child and they throw them in the back of a car, a six-year-old child, take them downstairs and fingerprint them and book them like they're booking a grown man who just raped somebody and then put that six-year-old kid in a cage. For a few hours till their parents come. You think that's right? But then you hear about this other parent kid had a pissy fit. They sent him down to the cost counselor office, call the parents. Parents took the kid to the doctor and gave him some dope. Gave him some Ritalin. I call it dope. Gave him Ritalin. Took him off a few candy bars. Monitored him. Watched him. Got a counselor for him. <laughs> That's how the system is with this school to prison. This, this is a shame. This is a this, this is pure shame. And like I said, when I looked at this thing, I reminded me reminded me of listening to Mike Tyson talk. This is what happened to him. This is what happened to the Tupacs. This is happened to a lot of urban kids. How they got into the judicial system early. Some got out. A lot of still there. And then when they come along with this three strikes, that's that's systemic racism. When you already see the numbers. You see the numbers of of, of, of the demographic of the folks who are on the verge 
or being incarcerated for 25, 30 years of life. You see the demographic before you come up with any of these bills and these laws, Mr. Clinton, Mr. Joe Biden. Y'all see this stuff. But let me tell y'all again. It's not so much about racism. It's more so about money. See, everything in America has been came down to money. You know, we can make more money if we incarcerate. If we incarcerate, we get free labor. We can get some things made on the cheap. They ain't got to go to China. You can just get it made from, from one of the institutions. If you need research done, medical research, need trials done, you can do it on a prisoner because they become ward of the state. You become state property when you're in the system. So when you become state property, guess what they can do on you? They can do drug tests. Like a, like a lot of that medicine that's in jail, you know, a lot of that medicine in jail, those are experimental drugs. So y'all know that, do y'all? A lot of the medicines in jail that they get in these prisoners are experimental drugs. You know, like the one guy was saying, he said, yeah, man, I go to jail, I get my teeth fixed. You know, I got medical. But everything you get is experimental drugs. Because you state property. You a guinea pig. You're not getting the best of anything. You know, but this subject kind of depressing me a little bit here. But look, what y'all think about that? School to prison pipeline. Why do America and the world hate black folks so much? My opinion on why they hate black folks so much. At one time it was, it's kind of odd to say that folks brought black people over here to work. Black people didn't ask to come over here. And then when they couldn't have their way with keeping black folks working, got mad because they had to let them go. Then they had nowhere to go. But then they didn't want these black folks around them. If they ain't working for us, we don't want them around us. I remember Marcus Garvey in the, uh, I believe it was the 70s, Big C. Big C, yeah, we know from Chicago. Was it Mark? I believe it was Marcus Garvey. He was going, he had these ships that he had procured. They had secured, rather. And they were going to, blacks were going to go back to Africa. And they had, matter of fact, I'm going to try to find that resource information. Maybe do a little talk on it. Because you always hear, when I was a little boy, they used to always tell black folks, if you don't like America, go back to Africa. Well, go back to Africa. How can you go back to somewhere where <laughs> you never volunteered to leave? <laughs> But his parents were was going to take him and his brother and his sister back to Africa. 
The government had gave a production. This is what he was telling me. So I'm going to do some more research for myself now. He was telling me and my brother. He said the government had gave permission for any blacks that want to go back to Africa that they can go. And Marcus Garvey had secured these ships. But before they can leave or go forward, America shut that down. Now nah, y'all ain't going nowhere. But that was kind of ironic. Now here it is. You don't want us here. You've been saying go back to Africa. Now we about to go back and you're saying no. You can't go. Why is that? Well, I'm going to do some more research on it. And I'm going to come back and tell y'all why. <laughs> and then you have the division between American blacks and African blacks. American blacks, if we get the education, you ever notice how other folks in the other countries send their kids to America and they get educated? And then they go back to their country and help build their country up. Have you heard about any Africans coming over here, learning American studies, and then going back to Africa and building their country up? No, you don't hear that. This is what I mean by systemic. This is systemic. They allow all the other countries, kids to come over here and learn get a good education, and then go back to their country to help their countries. But they don't do that to Africans. They don't give Africans visas, educational visas to come over here and learn and study, and then go back to Africa and, and help the African people. They don't do that. That's a cement. Now, now y'all think I'm both joking about doing research for yourself. No. This is glaring. Everybody else in the world get educated over here and go and, and go back to their country and do all kind of crazy stuff with the information that they've learned from this country. But they don't Africans don't have that opportunity. They're not allotted that Afri that opportunity. No, they're not. The systemic is not an American systemic racism, it's a worldwide systemic against the continent of Africa. Black people, you, you hear about, you know, I'm going to do a little talk on this too, you know, how Africa was divided up against, divided up amongst five European countries. Like I give the example to your people, it's like you got five bedrooms in your house and five white folks come in and each one of them take a bedroom and you sleeping on the floor outside. That's what they did to Africa. That's what's still going on in Africa. Now you got Chinese, China, China, Chinese folks moving into Africa. And whenever, whenever any African nations try to get together, here's the systemic stuff coming in. They get together and offer one something over the other one to have them fighting against each other. I guess the old saying, just like over in Africa, just like over here, if black folks stop fighting against each other and stop accepting paper money and all these other frivolous material things and think about coming together and banding together, it'll be a different world. It'll be a different Africa. It'll be a different American black folks.
Like the Jewish guy was telling me one time. Now, I know I kind of got all off track on systemic racism, but this is my little part. Talk about whatever I want to talk about, okay? One Jewish uh, fellow told me, he said, one thing about us Jews, he said, we stick together. He said, you know, we don't come outside and be all loud talking and telling people what we're going to do and this and that. He said, you know, we get together and we talk about things and then we implement. We stick together. He said, you black folk don't do that. Y'all loud. Y'all want to protest. You want to walk down the street and bust windows out. You want to be loud about it. You want to, like a peacock, you want to flaunt yourself. You don't stick together. And that's what they and, and that's what they do in Africa. They keep the African nations fighting against each other. By all of natural resources and minerals, European countries and Japan, not Japan, but China, is coming in and absorbing it. People mad at China, but I'm not mad at China. I mean, hey, if China if China got China wants something, then ain't nobody else helping you, what you gonna do? You got some African countries over there that ain't nobody helping, no European countries helping, nobody helping. China come in off from something and they take it and they roll with China. But what you gonna do? You know, that's just like you thirsty. Ain't nobody offering you water. But this man here, you gonna take his water. You thirsty. Didn't everybody else get mad at you for taking his water? It's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing, but the most amazing thing of it is that I just watched this thing. You know, like I said, the education system. I call it dummying down of the American system, of the American education system. Dummy down American system. Dummy downing of the American educational system. That's what I call it. But that's what's going on. You know, this Catholic priest once said one time, what he said, he said, give me a child. I can take, I give, give me a child. I'm going to say around six years old and I can make him a Catholic for life. Even the Bible talks about you train a kid when they're young and when they go old, they'll never stray. This is what's going on here in America. But it's not a good education what they're doing to our kids. They want to make our kids dope heads, weed heads, mushroom heads. Alcoholics. They don't want to teach them anything. They want them stupid. But they'll put a gun in their hand quick. Send them overseas somewhere. Put them on a boat or a plane quick. Tell them to go fetch. Take a look at this thing. Because let me tell you something. You may look at the school to prison and systemic racism. And you may say to yourself, this don't affect me. But let me tell you something. Everything is going to affect everybody because we are all connected. Just like I remember when that crack cocaine stuff came out. Heron. The Italians say in New York, hey, as long as the black folks was on that stuff, as long as you said it to the black folks, they tell you to tell their people. As long as you sell that stuff to, to the black folks, it's okay. But you can't sell this stuff to no Italian. You can't sell this stuff in our neighborhood to our people. You got to go over there and sell that stuff. And then the stupid black people, because they needed so much. I mean, I'm not going to call them stupid. 
They needed so much, they wanted to shine, so materialistic, want to be like the Italians. They take that same heroin poison, and, but they sell it to their people. They sell it to their friend mama, their friend sister, their friend daddy. The big destruction of the black community was done by blacks. The black drug dealers. I got to get mine, you got to get yours. Black folks destroyed their own community with this drug crap. I saw it firsthand in, in, in when they went even in, in Michigan. The community was beautiful. When this drug crack came in, people started selling this poison to their next door neighbors. Just, just so they can go buy a nice car. But see, but the systemic part about it is that when you take education out of the community, you take jobs out of the community. You take opportunity out of the community. And then you throw this rat poison drugs in there. You left the, you, you pretty much left the people no choice but but uh, personal survival. They'll tell people, just like in, in California, when Oliver North them and Ronald Reagan them dropped all that cocaine and heroin in California. When they start, first started rocking up cocaine, Free Ray Rick Ross and them, they'll tell you about it, how, 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 how in California, it was, communities was beautiful before that crack drugs hit. How, how when that stuff hit, they, they, they would walk down the railroad tracks and see just guns. I don't know who would dump them. They say the CIA, I don't know. I don't know who, but they say somebody was dumping guns. So now they, 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 the plants, General Motors and the plants, the factories closed up in California. People ain't had no jobs. So you drop the jobs. The education system started faltering. Opportunities started faltering. But then you throw this rat poison crack in there. Then you throw all them guns in there. And people, people see that they can make a little money off this stuff in a better situation. And then they start selling and killing their next door neighbors. Now their next door neighbor who used to always cut their grass every day or every or once a week ain't cutting their grass off because they trying to get high. They trying to chase this rat poison that you put into the community. Then you put these guns in the community. And now these young fools who are uneducated because there ain't no education system that can support them is killing each other because of this old drug crap stuff talking about my corner and they name it even on the street sign. Then they making zombies out the whole neighborhood now the whole neighborhood just collapse. People, people become dependent on the welfare system. And then you see all this violence going on in the community so you want to start like people so you build more prisons. You hire more prison guards. You hire more counselors. You you have you have you you bulk up your judicial system, more lawyers and judges to prosecute these people who you you threw the the drugs and the guns in the community for. Instead of allocating money funds to educate people, you allocate funds to build a bigger judicial system to light people up. Now that's something, ain't it? Ain't that something? Sure is. That's something now. Sure is. But look up, I think of enough of y'all time. I'm going to get on out of here. Now look, everything I say is just my opinion and not the facts, okay? Just my little observation from the, from the stuff that I see. 
something I read. Now, I can be totally 100% wrong, and if I am, I want to be 100% wrong, because that means that everything all right, and we ain't got no issue, okay? But this school-to-prison pipeline is a serious thing, and it's been going on for years. Black people incarcerating themselves in their own community has been going on for years. And what I mean that is, when you put bars on your windows and your doors, you are incarcerating yourself in your own community. When in the community, when the community is so filthy, filthy, where you get used to living in filthy, you screwed up in the head. You gone. You lost. Some of these communities, oh God, it's just horrible looking. And people just sit there like, I'm waiting on tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to get better. Tomorrow is going to get better. I just need another crack rock. Oop, oop, no, no. Oh, I need to send me some more dope. Oop, oop, I need me a new pair of Nikes. Forget about getting a lawnmower and with some gas and go cut some yards so I can make some money. Nope, I got to get me a new Nike with some new Nikes with this. When y'all ain't gonna start me, I'm gonna get on out of here. Look, hey, folks, if you ever get a chance, y'all stop by and y'all try this Perdomo Maduro at a This is a real good stick here. Like I was telling y'all, go to your local cigar first, Bruce. Can't find the local cigar spot. Then you're going to see a host or somewhere like that. See if y'all can buy it online or fill up a humidor. Okay? Now I'm going to get on out of here because I took enough of y'all time already. And like I tell y'all always in life, y'all take care of everybody. But more importantly, y'all take care of y'allself. First. All right. Hey there, Ken, folk. This is Uncle Maduro. Look, if y'all been enjoying these little pie talks here I'll be giving, then won't y'all consider buying old Uncle Maduro a cigar? You can go right there to my little wave page there. Donate. Donate to Uncle Maduro just for the price of one cigar. And man, let me tell you, I keep on doing these little talks here that I be giving.